This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. The biggest union drive in Chicago right now is happening on Michigan Avenue at the Roastery. It's the largest Starbucks in the world. There are five floors dedicated to coffee, tea, and pastries. Hundreds of your workers have filed for a union election with the National Labor Relations Board. Workers have cited substandard pay and unsafe working conditions. Artemis Winter is a mixologist at the Roastery and is part of the organizing effort, and she joins us now. Hey, Artemis, welcome. Hey, Sasha, thanks for having me. Kathy Hanshu is president of the Chicago and Midwest Regional Joint Board of Workers United and international vice president of Workers United. Hi, welcome to Hi. Reset. Thanks for having us. Good to see you here. So Artemis, I'll start with you. What is it like working at the largest Starbucks in the world? So it's kind of crazy. So it's in some ways, it's very similar to a standard neighborhood Starbucks, but in some ways, it's completely different. Working with kind of an elevated craft where we're making more elaborate drinks, more elaborate cocktails, kind of it's a whole different experience. Whereas in a normal Starbucks, people are coming in to get their coffee for school and work and they're on their way. People are coming to the roastery to have a whole experience for an hour or two where you can get alcoholic beverages as well as hot food yeah. and more. I stepped in there for the first time like three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, how'd you like And I it? was a little overwhelmed. I was, I was, my daughter and I just started taking the escalator up on each floor just to see what was happening. It's huge. Um, but it was quite impressive. I will say that. You are, as I mentioned, a mixologist. So talk mm -hmm. to us more about what that position entails. What are you doing every day? So while there's coffee and food being served downstairs, on the fourth floor, we have our cocktail bar where we serve things like espresso martinis, cocktails, mocktails, margaritas, everything kind of focusing on either espresso, coffee, or tea. So every signature cocktail will have one of those ingredients, as well as some drinks that are kind of uh, owes to Chicago as a city. Yeah. Well, one of the allegations from workers is that there are unsafe working conditions at the roastery. Some workers even cited bullying from, from management. What, what's going on? I'd say overall there's kind of a, a strong uh, atmosphere of oppression and kind of over overworking and burnout. To work there, you're either, if you're working 40 hours a week, if you can even get 40 hours, you're working back to back, you only have one day off in a row. A two day weekend is a luxury at the roastery. What yeah. do you mean if you can even get 40 hours? So either, uh, there are many of us who are able to be full-time employees, but many people are, are getting around maybe 32, less than 30 hours a week, which doesn't sound like a lot. You're only losing eight hours a week, that's not bad. But after weeks and weeks and weeks, that's 40 hours. That's a lot of wages you're losing. Yeah, Kathy, let's bring you in here. How does this compare to um, conditions at other Starbucks in our area as well as across the country? Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty systemic in the way that Starbucks operated or operates and has, it's worsened since the onslaught of the organizing drive with them reducing hours for workers and um, really financially impacting, you know, these folks that are just trying to make it, you know, they, they want to go to work. What we've found is many, many Starbucks workers really like working for Starbucks. They like the kind of work that they do. Mm -hmm and um, make themselves as available as they can to receive hours. But it seems that Starbucks has intentionally cut those hours as a way to um, kind of diminish the organizing drive or to, um, you know, kind of send a message to the workers that, you know, we can control your destiny here, so you need to do as we want you to do. Artemis, Starbucks says that workers earn between 18.75 and 30.75 an hour. This is based on, on tenure at the company. Has that been your experience? Uh, 
The starting wage does sound accurate. We have our my starting wage when I started at the grocery was eighteen seventy five. I know of nobody who's made thirty dollars anymore. The highest I saw was twenty seven. But regardless of what the wage they're offering, I know many of my coworkers are experiencing food insecurity. They're worried about where rent's going to come through next week. Mm. So regardless of what wages they're advertising and uh, highlighting, there's still so much insecurity and wage fear. So tell me why you want uh, a union at Starbucks. What are you hoping that it will change? I'm hoping so kind of historically we've been at the whims of what Starbucks ever has to offer us. They say, oh, this is enough wage for you. These are enough benefits for you. And we're kind of just had to live in this uh, world of uncertainty. They can fire us anytime. They can give us whatever we want. And we just have to say thank you. But when we're working together, we're joining as a coalition with solidarity. We're uplifting ourselves by demanding more and protecting ourselves by not making us vulnerable to whatever they want to do. Starbucks Workers United is hoping full and part-time workers and mixologists and bakers will all be included. So that, that'll be a huge unit. Oh, absolutely. There's I think there's about 240 workers in the world's largest Starbucks right now. Yeah. We'd like to get them all involved. Yeah. Why is it important to get everyone all involved and include all of these workers? So while we yeah. are uh, doing different roles, there's bakers, there's baristas, there's mixologists, we're all going for the same mission and we're all kind of at the end of the day, we're doing the same job. It's one workplace. It's one workforce. And while we are doing many different roles, we're all in this fight together. Kathy, what workers have been included in the bargaining units in, in other Starbucks stores? Um, in other Starbucks stores, it's it's the baristas. It is, um, you know, people who work through the in the drive throughs people who are preparing the food. Um, it's, it's pretty all-inclusive when it comes to the other locations because they're not quite as diverse with the work that they do relative to the roastery. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're talking about efforts to unionize at Starbucks Reserve Roastery on Michigan Avenue. That's the largest Starbucks in the world. And the fight for a fair contract at Starbucks stores that have voted for a union. Artemis Winter is here, a mixologist at the roastery who's part of this organizing effort. And Kathy Hanshu, who is president of the Chicago and Midwest Regional Joint Board of Workers United. So sticking with you, Kathy, you've won union recognition at several Starbucks locations throughout the city, but you haven't yet negotiated a contract, I hear, right? So talk to us about that. What are the holdups? Yeah, no. So um, here in the greater Chicagoland area, there's currently 15 unionized Starbucks stores. Um, There has not been of that, you know, 15 here in the greater Chicagoland area, but there has been 340 Starbucks stores organized nationally. And there has not been not one contract negotiated at any of those locations. Um, The union has made every effort to get to the table, Mm -hmm. to bring the workers to the table, to negotiate a first contract, Um, but we have not been successful. The company has, um, while they claim that they're willing to bargain, I think the national average sits somewhere around seven minutes for the length of time that they've been inside of any one room for purposes of collective bargaining. Mm. Well, the issue of showing up to the negotiations, as you mentioned, it seems contentious, right? Because you've said that Starbucks isn't showing up. Here's what they had to say in a statement to to WBEZ on the matter. Uh, It says, Starbucks is committed to progress negotiations towards a first contract where union representatives have approached contract bargaining with professionalism and have allowed both parties to discuss proposals. They also went on to say, even though we have attempted to schedule bargaining for hundreds of stores, Workers United has only met Starbucks at the table to progress negotiations for 10 stores. 
your reaction? That's inaccurate. That's not true. Um, I know just here within our region where we represent workers throughout the Midwest, these Starbucks workers throughout the Midwest, we ourselves have gone to over 10 collective bargaining tables. Um, Starbucks has had the union's proposals for at least nine months at this point, Mm -hmm. and they have not responded to not one single proposal that has been put forth by the union. And these are pretty basic proposals. The initial proposals are pretty basic. It's language that you'll find in just about every collective bargaining agreement, regardless of whether it's a Starbucks negotiations or some other employer negotiations. Mm -hmm. And they have yet to respond to even one of those proposals. And you're doing this shop by shop, right? We are doing it shop by shop. Um, We, for our region, we initially put forth a schedule for bargaining that was um, concurrent bargaining that encompassed multiple locations. And Starbucks pushed back and resisted against that. There has been a call for national bargaining, and they have pushed back and resisted that. They are yeah, the, in the same statement, Starbucks says, quote, the store-by-store approach was not our preference, end quote. <laughs> the, store-by-store, the store-by-store organizing was not their preference. Um, but as far as negotiations goes, they have very much taken the position that it had to be a store-by-store collective bargaining process. Artemis, do you feel like the labor laws go far enough in, in protecting workers' rights to bargain? Protecting their rights to bargain? Yes, I think it's uh, from what I've seen so far, it's it's very difficult for uh, workers to organize as a store or even as a workforce and come together and uh, create a union. So I think the laws could be a little more fair to workers, making it easier to get the rights they're entitled to. How are you feeling about the upcoming election? I'm feeling really good. The, there's great energy in the store. We've had a lot of uh, movements to social solidarity. We've worn the same color bandana. We're wearing our pins all around the store. We have a a solidarity sipping coming this Wednesday. There's only good spirits in the store. Solidarity sipping. Uh, bigger picture here, though, Kathy, this summer, we're seeing workers hit the picket lines in a variety of industries, right? Uh, famously, we're hearing about the Hollywood actors and writers who are on this historic joint strike. Workers in the hospitality industry, they're striking in some states. Here in Chicago, Loretto Hospital workers, they're on strike. What do you think led us to this moment, this hot labor summer, as they're calling it? Um, I think that, you know, one, workers have been, you know, held down for a very long time. So I think it was natural that eventually workers were going to start standing up. But I think coming out of the pandemic, you know, it was it really floated to the surface and became quite apparent at how important workers are. Not only did the community see it, but the workers saw it and felt and felt it themselves. They were told that they were essential, told how important they were, how appreciated they were. Um, and as soon as the, you know, the, the challenges that came with the pandemic, as soon as those started to lessen, corporate America went back to the same old, same old mm-hmm. and thought that they could continue to keep workers down. And workers had done moved far beyond that. So what's ahead? What's next? Well, we are going to continue fighting. We are going to continue fighting, um, you know, not only in the streets, but continue fighting in the courts and with the, you know, through the National Labor Relations Board. You know, as Artemis spoke to, many of the challenges. I mean, if you have a an employer who has had 
thousands of complaints issued against him, has had over <clears throat> 300 complaints issued by the National Labor Relations Board against him, has had rulings on behalf of 30 ALJ judges that speaks to Starbucks' bad behavior when it comes to this process. Yeah. And they just continue. So, you know, not only are we going to continue organizing workers, but we are going to continue pushing the labor board and pushing the courts to to give workers the justice that they're due. And Artemis, the roastery election is September 1st and 2nd? August 25th and August 26th. August 25th and August 26th. How are you feeling about having to negotiate a contract eventually? I'm excited. I'm ready to have a a positive outcome this election and start working with our partners all across the nation to get a, a contract that works for all of us. One thing at a time, right? Exactly. Artemis Winter is a mixologist at the Roastery and is part of the organizing effort. And Kathy Hanshu is president of the Chicago and Midwest Regional Joint Board of Workers United. Thank you both for your time. Thank, Thank you. you. Let's hear now from Robert Bruno, who's a professor of labor and employment relations at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Welcome, Professor. Thank you, Sasha. Nice to be with you all. Yeah, good to talk with you again. I mean, you've been listening to my conversation there with Artemis and Kathy. Your reaction, first of all, to what we just heard? Uh, well, it's 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 very disturbing uh, that workers continue to be treated this way uh, by a company, uh, Starbucks, which is incredibly profitable and, and makes a claim to being uh, a company that is, uh, you know, represents current culture and social uh, attitudes um, to continue to ignore the will of, of workers uh, is very disturbing. Uh, but it's, a, it's not a, an uncommon practice, and we're seeing it in lots of industries. And, and sadly, uh, it's, it's well embedded in the American labor relations system that uh, employers will uh, go to almost any extreme to avoid uh, allowing workers to collectively represent themselves. Yeah. I mean, to to that end, uh, Bob, what do you think led us to this moment, this hot labor summer I mentioned? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, clearly uh, the pandemic and then uh, and the trauma that it caused to the workplace, um, I think, raised consciousness for millions of workers um, that something really needed to change. Uh, that what they had sort of accepted as a new normal, essentially for decades of stagnant wages and falling union rates, mm-hmm. uh, was something that they uh, th- that they couldn't tolerate any any longer. Um, and and certainly the you know the, the workers gained lots of leverage as the economy opened up. Uh, and I think workers did look at the took another look at organizing. They, they took another look at labor unions and realized that singly. They really could not change their working conditions, but uh, jointly, uh, in a collective way, uh, they could. Um, and so uh, there is this uh, th- this idea that it that if you join a union, it would make a difference. And yeah. there's always been a significant union premium. Yeah, and and you know we're seeing a lot of new organizing in the past few years at, at these places where we typically haven't seen mm-hmm. successful drives. Right, Starbucks, Amazon, museums, sure. cultural institutions, clinics. What do you make of that and of who is being included in the bargaining unit? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so as you say, uh, these are lots of uh, uh, new workplaces and not the traditional uh, places uh, that when we think of union organizing, uh, these are workers uh, typically who are very well educated, uh, uh, tend to be 
connected to the larger political and social uh, infrastructure, um, and people deeply committed to the committed to their institutions, yeah. whether they're hospitals uh, or the cultural institutions, and they want these institutions really to live up. Uh, to their expectations uh, and to the claims for them. And I think a lot of that drives the the desire to have these institutions function more effectively. What do you think it tells us about how the pandemic affected workers, you know, their sense of what kinds of conditions are acceptable? Yeah, more balance, right? Um, Work shouldn't kill you. Uh, Work shouldn't drain you. Work should be integrated into your life. It should be meaningful. It, it needs to be useful. Uh, at the end of the day, you need to feel good about the work you do, uh, in addition to the fact that work should pay. It should be a ladder into the middle class. Um, work should provide an opportunity for you to problem solve, to have some voice, um, have some discretion about uh, about how things are getting done and how services are being provided. Uh, I think workers have taken a just a, a, a fresh look mm-hmm. at how work has to contribute to a holistic way of living. And in lots of these workplaces, you're seeing people say, well, we really love the work we do. We're committed to the institutions, uh, but work uh, should make us more fully human and should contribute to the well-being of society. Uh, and that, I think, is, is uh, probably very uh, threatening and challenging to corporate leaders. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We have been talking about efforts to unionize in the Chicago area this summer. And now we're going to talk about what happens after workers win a union, and that is getting a contract. Our guest today is Bob Bruno, professor of labor and employment relations at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And joining us now is Anders Lindell, director of communications for the American Federation of State, County and Municipal Employees, or AFSCME, Council 31. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Sasha. So you organize to get a union and you vote, but it's not over at that point. You then have to win this contract, right? And that can take years. Anders, lay it out for us. What happens when you negotiate a contract? Just walk us through that process. Yeah. So I would just start by saying um, it usually would not take years to get a first contract. And a lot of that is dependent upon uh management's stance do they want to have a positive uh working relationship that's collaborative um so when you are certified um whether management voluntarily recognizes your union or whether you uh, achieve that through an election uh then you prepare to bargain uh you put together uh, who's going to be on your bargaining committee in the case of our union, AFSCME, uh, our bargaining committees are always made up of rank-and-file workers who are activists in their local and who are elected by their co-workers to represent them on the committee. Those are the people who will sit at the table then across from management, and they have a chief negotiator who is on our staff, somebody from AFSCME who that's what they do is bargain contracts. Our union represents almost 75,000 people uh, throughout Illinois. We have about 150 different employers. So we bargain contracts all the time. So we can provide a lot of technical assistance to workers, to their bargaining committee. Um, 
workers then uh, who are on the committee talk to their coworkers um, about what their priorities are, what are the challenges that they face, what are the common things they want to address. Um, and those can be what we call non-economic, so they're language issues that might be about hours of work. They might be about um, what you're, if there's, if there's specialized clothing or apparel at work. Um, it might be about developing a fair process for resolving problems that arise at work, sometimes called a grievance and arbitration process. There are a lot of non-economic issues. Then there are the economic issues, and that, of course, is wages, but it also would include paid time off, uh, parental leave, uh, health insurance. It might include a retirement benefit like a 401K or a pension. Um, and all of those things are subjects of bargaining. I see. What do you make of the contract fights going on in Chicago right now, Professor Bruno? Uh, well, uh, uh, you know, to, to a great extent, they're, uh, they're, you know, they're fairly typical. Uh, once you've got organized, uh, you then have to get that first contract, and first co- contracts can be a challenge, as, as Anders uh, mentioned, um, and employers typically uh, would rather not have to sign that contract. They'd like to frustrate uh, workers uh, in, in, in getting that agreement, um, and it can be very piecemeal in, in which very small offers are made, very few concessions uh, are offered. Now, lots of time uh, goes by between uh, the bargaining and it's that's meant strategically mm-hmm. uh, to try to wear down uh, the workers' commitment uh, to the union uh, with the hope uh, that if enough time has really passed, uh, the union will uh, decide to, to settle on, on something that's sort of better than, uh, than nothing. And the employer has a lot of tools, a lot of weapons. There's quite a bit of money spent, over $400 million actually um, spent uh, to try to avoid uh, unionization really? uh, in this kind of 400,000, I'm sorry, 400,000, not 400,000. Uh, you know, it's in a, it, there's a lot of money that's invested. No, it is 400 million. I'm sorry. Um, so the employers really fight pretty hard to try to avoid unionization and they continue to fight to avoid a, uh, a first contract. Uh, and uh, the law doesn't require an agreement. It just requires that, uh, that besides bargaining in good faith and bargaining in good faith can be a pretty uh, subjective mm-hmm. uh, standard uh, to meet. Uh, it, not easily done. And in the United States, uh, roughly about a quarter of, of union members, after they've been organized, uh, have actually got a labor agreement within the first year or two. Uh, so it, it can be a long, drawn-out uh, process, and it's meant to frustrate. Yeah. I understand, uh, Anders, that AFSME just reached a tentative agreement with the Art Institute. Uh, this was the first wave of cultural museum workers in, in Chicago, and now the first to actually reach a tentative agreement. Is that right? That's right, and it's very exciting. Um, uh, about two years ago, uh, staff of the Art Institute and its affiliated school of the Art Institute, about 600 employees, uh, organized with our union. They won their election in December of 2021. 
they elected a bargaining committee. They surveyed all of their coworkers about their priorities. They got to the table with management in May of 2022. And after 14 months of bargaining, they reached a tentative agreement uh, last week, uh, just uh, a week ago today, in fact. And the wow. next step then is for uh, the coworkers on the bargaining committee to take the terms of that tentative agreement back to their coworkers at uh, union meetings on the work site later this week and early next week. Uh, they'll explain all of the details, answer everyone's questions, and then all of the union members cast their vote. Uh, do they want to approve the tentative terms of this agreement? And when a majority votes yes, then that becomes the contract. And, you know, I certainly uh, hear and I acknowledge the reality of what Bob is saying, uh, you know, the resources that some employers devote to continuing to try to frustrate workers' rights even after they win a union um, by uh, refusing to settle an agreement. But, you know, I want to highlight the other side here. Of course, forming a union having a strong union is a continuous process. So you don't stop organizing the day you win that election. You keep organizing, you keep bringing pressure, you keep informing your colleagues and uh, even taking to the streets if you need to do that um, in order to, to pressure the employer to reach an agreement. But I also wanna say what a positive and really transformational experience of being able to sit down at the table as co-equals with management, how transformational that is for working people. So many of us go through our lives not having a say in the decisions that are made that affect us at work. And when employees are able to do that through their union and realize the self-determination of bargaining to resolve the problems they have and overcome the challenges they encounter, mm -hmm. not only can they better their working lives, but it is just such an inspiring uh, experience uh, yes. to be able to, you know, have realized that, that power and become so empowered as an employee together with your coworkers through your union that you built yourself. Yeah, sounds like a lot of wins there. In, in settling and in ratifying that contract for over 30,000 state workers. Professor, what, what do we see historically about the role of unions in fighting for social change? Well, you know, I, I think this is probably the most underappreciated story. Uh, we, conventionally, we think about unions negotiating wages and hours and working conditions in a clearly raising the economic prosperity of the workers they represent. Uh, and there's a significant spillover into the broader uh, community. Uh, but there's a bigger contribution. Um, and, and, and that is that unions see themselves, or at least the very best of the labor movement, sees themselves as agents of, of transformational change, that they can address issues of social injustice. Uh, they can bring justice to the workplace, but they can also help uh, to bring equity and justice to a community. Uh, they can address issues around poverty, uh, mm. around affordable housing, uh, about um, uh, forms of uh, discrimination, 
uh, about taking care of the poor, about doing quality work, about patient care, about Protect AFSCME, a union that protects assets that are owned by the people of Illinois. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their workers that that get organized uh, vote at a higher rate. They're they're more educated about political issues. Um, the, The whole point is that uh, they're not just they're not just impacting a a single well, workplace, but they're having greater impacts on quality of of life. And uh, union leaders, uh, really throughout American history, uh, have have made the claim uh, that the labor movement, that its purpose, uh, quite frankly, uh, is to uh, democratize uh, America, and and by that meaning that power is shared uh, and that there is an equal stake uh, for anyone um, who, who's really willing to put in a, a fair day's work. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's to our detriment that we don't have a greater understanding of the power of this institution. Uh, in fact, lots of historians have made the case, and I, this will be a, a very dramatic claim, but if it hadn't been for the American labor movement coming out of the 1930s, uh, that America may have found itself uh, with a more fascist, fascistic form yeah. of, of government and society. Anders, um, and uh, I think, Yeah, well, what are your thoughts, Anders, on the, the role of workers in, in getting the institution to live by their values during those contract negotiations? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, whether it is, uh, you know, nursing home workers in uh, Stevenson County organizing to uh, keep their nursing home in public hands rather than sold to an out-of-state for-profit private company that would cut corners on cost. Um, and therefore on quality of care, Uh, whether it is library workers in Niles who, when uh, some extreme individuals were elected to the library board on a platform of cutting the library budget and reducing its services, uh, Niles Library employees organized a union for the first time with AFSCME, they were able to organize together with the community to stop budget and program cuts. Mm-hmm. And then workers in the community went together uh, and organized on behalf of other candidates, uh, went to the polls in an organized way this spring and brought a pro-library majority back to the Niles Library Board, um, you know, preserving that educational resource for the community. Um, and I think that that's what you're seeing cultural workers try to do, uh, not only with the Art Institute, but the Museum of Science and Industry and the field and yeah. others, um, that these institutions should not just be uh, big names uh, that are uh, perceived as leaders uh, within the cultural field, but actually act as leaders as civic institutions with living wages um, and fair treatment uh, and power sharing with employees in the belief that uh, a museum or other cultural institution that is a good place to work will also be a better place to learn and for everyone to visit. 
Professor, I want to quickly, in the interest of time here, touch on, uh, on another sector that's seeing contract fights, which is the medical sector, right, at Howard Brown and, and Loretto Hospital. Uh, Loretto workers, about 200 of them, went on strike uh, last week, and, you know, nurses and doctors and techs and other staff say that being understaffed and uh, high turnovers is making it more difficult for them to provide quality care for the patients. Briefly talk about how we're seeing this play out in the contract negotiation process. Right. Um, so it's so the SCIU representing the Loretto hospital workers have made it very clear that the lack of proper staffing uh, the degradation of uh, the quality of the jobs that that they do uh, and poor levels of of compensation have really uh, threatened and put at risk the quality of care that this hospital uh, provides and so you can see at the heart of their bargaining um, uh, the union is not just making a, a case to raise wages and to uh, uh, increase staffing but they're they're inviting it uh, in the need to protect the community to better serve their clients. So yeah. there are these larger community goods, public goods that they're focusing on, not just the bread and butter issues uh, like pay right. uh, for their members. Yeah, last year, uh, Howard Brown's union expanded to include retail workers, social workers, mental health workers. I mean, they're in the midst of negotiating a contract right now. Just talk briefly about what gets difficult in negotiating in the medical space, right, where, where stakes are life or death professor uh, well yeah and, and it can be there can be uh, any number uh, uh, of, of issues um you know it, it's the st- staffing is absolutely uh, critical uh in in these settings there's also a need to continue care uh the, the medical industry is going through a lot of churning it has gone through a lot of churning uh, a different uh, uh, conglomeration selling of this medical facility to to this group, uh, the different ways that insurance is going to cover uh, costs. So it creates uh, a fair amount of uh, instability in these settings. Um, and and you also have hospital CEOs that are paid pretty handsomely, yeah. way above you know many deviations above what hospital workers are paid in this environment. Uh, the hospital is inclined to to hang on uh, to uh, uh, to every dollar to want to get by with it, with as uh, inexpensive a labor force as they can. But then, of course, there is this negative impact on patient care right. uh, because you need these workers; they're absolutely essential to the whole foundation within the hospital. These hospital workers hold up so much on the line here. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to leave it there for now. Bob Bruno is professor of labor and employment relations at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and Anders Lindahl, director of communications for AFSCME Council 31. Thank you both so much for your time.